when you think about it, right, you know, and I strongly believe this, like people are really, really deeply into narratives. Today's conversation touches on bereavement and mental health, amongst many other things. I think the real sadness is that, barring some exceptions, is you do hack it, you know, you do work it out. And there's a great sadness in there because... In some ways, you would like your world only to operate when your parents are in it, right? Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Simon. Hello Simon. Hello. <laughs> so the first question that I ask everybody is how do you know me? Uh, so I know you from Spark London and I met you when I was doing the Risk show that, and that you guys did together yeah. with, the, with Spark and that was an amazing event and that's when I met you. Yeah, I mean, that's right. We both told a story. Mm-hmm. The theme was... What was the theme? Was it surprise or? Yeah, surprise. Yeah, I completely it's, ignored it. I mean, I yeah, mine was very little to do with surprise, much more to do with risk. And risk is a an American podcast that I enjoy, and it's basically very very risky story. That it, it has to cost the person telling it some some sort of risk to tell, mm-hmm. which means that a lot of it is very not safe for work. A lot of it is quite scatological. I don't always enjoy that element of it but I like the fact that honesty is out there and then some of it's emotionally mm-hmm. quite hard to tell your story was really in the emotionally hard to tell area I think well I don't know I guess that's a tricky I'm new I'm not really sure how much of a risk I was taking I mean obviously there was a kind of a risk in just doing it and just telling a story anyway but you know that's kind of a cop-out because then every story is a risk right but in terms of actually telling it, you know, this is a weird thing that I haven't really figured out how to communicate to people. But like talking about something and kind of living through something are two really different things. And I have I have no problem with talking about my history, even though as a you know, as must be kind of like quite an emotional journey for me. And I really did it because I wanted to honor my mum. Mm. You know, well, that was what was so uh, moving about it. From, from my point of view, I think that's what the audience generally felt. I mean, it was kind of a eulogy sort of thing, like a, a love song mm-hmm. uh, to your mum. I think it was a very powerful story. You read some of it, didn't you? Or you had notes? Or yeah, I had, a, I had one of my mum's emails. So right, that I translated was right. And that in itself was very interesting because it was a you know it was an unusual approach to telling a story which which worked really well I, I felt. Well, well I mean so it was more by suggestion because I sent my drafts uh, to Kevin the guy who runs Risk I've been around storytelling a little bit because uh, my friend's dad he does fictional storytelling and I used to be part of a storytelling club and I don't really I didn't really tell stories there but I heard a lot of stories but I was still quite new to it and he kind of gave me pointers is like you know details really good and he mm. said like if you have anything from her what she's actually you know written herself you should bring that in so I did and you know it was really appropriate because my mum was always writing and I think also in a weird way now thinking about it it kind of uh, filled in something because at her funeral I didn't speak you know I, I didn't speak at either of my parents funerals 
and um, you know, I just, I don't know, I, I just didn't give it much thought. I just didn't want to do it. And in this way, it's kind of like maybe like the thing I would have said, you know? right? Or well, probably would not have said because obviously now it's been like it's been like ten years or so. But you know, the thing I could have said, I suppose. Yeah, and I mean, also at Spark, I've heard you do a similar thing about your about your father, and you say in both of those stories when you've told them that the other parent deserves their own story, and you're right. I mean, and they they both work really well, and I guess we'll. We'll probably cover areas of them, but I'm not going to ask you to retell them. Yeah, I mean, I was really moved by your story that night. Yeah, and that that was a strange night for me personally because my, I was telling a story that I was mm-hmm. uh, scared and felt was risky to me to mm-hmm. tell for, God, quite a number of reasons. I mean, I, it was basically when I came out about being in an open relationship. Like, I didn't. I came out a while back before that, but... The reason I came out is because I knew I was telling the risk story and I knew that was going to have a much bigger profile than a lot of my stuff and that uh, if I wanted to talk about these things out loud to the public, I should probably tell people who, who know me because they I don't. it's not that I think they're going to be prejudiced, but they weren't really, with some exceptions. It was more that they know me better, so they should know first, you know. It's, so it felt like I had to bring my family and stuff as a result because I was doing that story at risk. Well, this is really interesting, you know. I, I guess you really took the um, the title to heart. Right, but also it was like, where else could I tell a story about going to uh, going to a, a sex club? I mean, it, it seemed so perfect for Risk as well that I couldn't, and I love Risk so much. And I and I want to do Risks. I want to take Risks, and I'm, I want to be more open and out there and shit like that. Mm-hmm. It does come at a cost, but, it, but, it sh- but it, that's okay. It's worth paying, I think. Well, I mean, you could see it as a cost. The primal element of risk is not is is not the cost. It's, I guess, it's it's about about the danger of what could go wrong, right? In the context, and you know, sometimes you know nothing goes wrong, and it's paid off because you've been brave, right? And you know, I guess I would say that hopefully you take risks that enrich your life right. rather than are detrimental, right? Where you pay your cost, right? Right, because obviously not all risk is good. Um, And, you know, one of the things that's hard about being an adolescent is you have a different kind of relationship with the concept of risk, uh, brain-wise, I believe. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. I mean, I think the hardest thing for me about telling the story I told, and I really am proud of it, so I guess mentioning it here means that more people are likely to go and listen back to it. They should. They should listen to both yours and mine that are in that episode live from London I think it is the thing that was hardest for me was kind of doing this thing that I did at the end which was about saying that I'm not ugly mm-hmm. um, and actually saying those words out loud and owning them mm-hmm. uh, I still don't want to say them out loud and own them even now like I've just I ran it into the sentence mm-hmm. so and I think that that was kind of a a hard thing to do in public but I, I can't imagine how hard it must have been in a way to talk about the death of your mum like so openly and honestly and like really you don't have to relive it but Mm -hmm. you were like you and I'm not saying you did but you you communicated some stuff about it to people and that was really valuable but I bet hard yeah I don't know I've I don't know I wouldn't I wouldn't say exactly hard I don't know you know, the thing is, and I don't know, maybe this sounds a bit strange, but it's, as I said before, it's not hard to talk about. It's quite easy. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, 
No, you know, it's just not hard. I mean, it's hard to tell it well, right? But that's something different. Yeah, it's sure. not really hard to talk about. And I guess, yeah, as I said, like I, like I, I can't figure out a way of communicating what well, the difference is for me, at least, between, you know, between this idea of of, of expressing what I feel about it and and then the reality of it. And I guess that's the whole thing with, you know, kind of losing your parents anyway. I shouldn't didn't know how grief operated for me. And I think a lot of people don't really have an idea, right? You know, lots of people say to me, they're like, I wouldn't be able to hack it, like losing my parents. And, and the idea is, you know, what I feel is the opposite. I think the real sadness is that, barring some exceptions, is you do hack it, you know, you do work it out. And there's a great sadness in that. Because in some ways, you would like your world only to operate when your parents are in it, right? But, you know, the world just goes on, it moves on. Right, sure. And your acceptance of that is, is yeah, I don't know, if you do move on, you know, if you don't, but if you do move on, is, is a given. And you know, probably one, one of the more painful things about it. Right. I mean, for me, it's a really complicated thing to hear, I guess. And I hear it a lot because of stand-up tragedy as well as Spark London. The experience of losing one's parents early-ish mm-hmm. in life. like, And friends of mine have had that experience as well. And it kind of has a, a weird kind of resonance for me because when I was like six, my dad had a heart attack. Um, mm-hmm. And he's like, he was 58 when I was born, so he's always been old. And so he had a heart attack. Then he had a a quadruple heart bypass when I was 15. Mm -hmm. And so I always assumed Mm -hmm. that he was going to die any minute. Mm -hmm. I was expecting it to happen at any minute. I was like uh, incredibly worried about it. I I, I thought about it so much that when I was at university, I wrote a play um, which imagined him dying Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and got him to perform that part in a radio piece. Yeah, like amazing. it was amazing, uh, and there's some problems with that radio play, unfortunately. So I can't put it out into the world. But that part of it was really good. But but yeah, I mean, I imagined it. I I, I fictionalized it. I went through it, and now I'm 33, and my dad is still alive. It's not happened. I was preparing, and it will happen. Now it's it's got to happen soon, mm-hmm. and I know it's going to happen. But I've sort of spent all my time my life up to now worrying about it um whereas for you i guess like it's like it's like it's like that thing like i have this experience sometimes when people are infertile and they can't have children and i've chosen to have a vasectomy and it's the same kind of i feel like there's a similar kind of relationship between where you are and where i am like the thing i had you would have wanted and i don't want what you had but i was worried about it so much that it felt like it was going to happen to me i mean it's a strange comparison i guess yeah, well, you know, I think I, I think there is definite like real horror to kind of the anticipation of something which is which has almost nothing to do with how actually those kind of things resolve. Right, exactly. And you know, I lived through a little bit of that because I had the sense that you know my dad might die for you know maybe like one or two years before he actually did because you know his very unstable figure kind of went on this kind of I don't know like almost like alcohol-fueled vacations where you would just drop out my life kind of thing. Right. And then, you know, teetering on, on the edge of depression and, you know, later I learned suicidal thoughts and stuff. But I knew, you know, I, I think I, yeah, I even vocalised the possibility that, that he very well might die. And that was shit because at that point 
I already knew that my mum is severely ill and she went through like a whole roller coaster with cancer and um, the, the prospect of she losing both my parents was was something I was kind of dreading for, right. for a while. Right, okay. And um, yeah, it funny did happen. But like, I don't know. I mean, I've also come to realise, and again, this is this is kind of like a hard sell, I suppose, but like for for 16 years, like both my parents really, really loved me, right? You know, my dad was a bit complicated. You know, I had my issues with my mum, certainly as I was a teenager, but like that's marginal stuff. You know, my dad is a little bit more deep-rooted when he was... You know, when he was in his, uh, one of his kind of alcohol binge things, then, you know, he was very manipulative and difficult to deal with. And there was definitely some kind of less pretty sides of his character. But, like, still, like, there was never any doubt that he cared greatly for me. So, for 16 years, I had two really kind of loving parents. And on top of that, also two divorced parents who also who still really cared for each other. You know, they couldn't make it work. And I think my dad... You know, might have still really been in love with my mum in some sense. My mum was definitely done. But there was a real connection there. And, you know, that was... I, I don't associate my childhood with a lot of the kind of usual kind of problems that come up with divorced parents. For me, it was... Mm. I mean, you know, obviously my dad wasn't in my life a lot because he was living in the UK at the time. And I was living in Holland because I grew up there. So I didn't see him as much as he could have. And he wasn't like a really big part of my life, which is, of course, sad. But... You know, by and large, it was it was good, you know. And, uh, you know, in that I'm really lucky, you know, as I've lived a little bit longer and, and met some more people. is like people who have really ambiguous relationship with their parents. Mm. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. I I've can. met some of them, as in me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. not both my parents, but <clears throat> I've got an ambiguous relationship with my mum and my stepdad. And, uh, you know, that, you know, I'm I'm... I'm I'm lucky that, you know, that's never happened for me. And, you know, somebody said something as well at a different um, Spark session, which I thought was right, right? Or or felt right, at least. Is somebody said, she, I don't know, I think she was like a youth worker or something. And she said, like, you know, she worked with a lot of kind of like kids and some sometimes they, they lose their parents and stuff. And she said, you know, the ones that are really loved by their parents usually turn out fine. And I think I think that's been my experience. So in, in that sense, you know, mm. I was glad, uh, you know, I was blessed with an amazing mum and dad for as long as I got to enjoy their company, as it were. Right, right. Yeah, I, and I, I get what you mean as well. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'm in a sort of strange position of having had a lot of the things you're talking about mm -hmm. with my dad completely straightforwardly, mm -hmm. with my mum and my stepdad very complicatedly and I haven't always felt that that was like that I had that love there or that mm -hmm. love wasn't simple uh like wasn't you know like I know what it's like when it works yeah and it didn't it wasn't like that mm -hmm. with those other people um but we both had I think quite unconventional like family lives in terms of divorced parents and probably outlook and educational kind of outlook of our parents like I guess like my mum and my dad were split up before I was born mm -hmm. but my dad still lived with us for quite a lot of the time like in a partitioned off part of the house we went to his house at weekends wow, um, and uh, then and my stepdad was with my mum on the other side and then and then then it changed and it was two houses and we went to his flat but then it was back he moved back in with us and kind of brought up my little sister who wasn't his child as well as as well as me so he he 
he he had a yeah that that's a strange divorced parents model right they 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 always managed to get on my parents right in a, a similar sort of way that you're kind of touching on a bit with yours yeah no definitely you know and uh, you know that was beautiful you know it's one of the things I you know really credit my mum for you know more and more as years go by it's like you know in a way it was it was definitely to a fault and she was like because I was talking about uh, the story I told with uh, with an old friend of hers who we still kind of talk to every now and then and he said like and I don't remember this at all but this is amazing he said that you know she used to do like alternative medicine and stuff because of course she was a bit of a hippie and then after that she would felt really good right and then she would just you know kind of you know draw up all of her strength and she would go to my dad to fucking clean his flat what the hell really you know ill seriously seriously ill right going through deep stages of cancer still managing to do that you know it's it's somewhere between you know saintly and stupid but you know it's right well that was the beautiful thing about the way that you summed her up in your story i mean the way you sort of embraced all of these different complicated sides of her and really treated her as a really fully rounded human being and everything that means um which i thought was a a wonderful thing to hear i mean she was yeah like you say what does hippie mean for you what was like because i've i guess you could call my parents hippies a bit but they never actually were in the movement or anything they they they, they were influenced by a lot of things in hippiness but they, well I, I guess i guess i don't you know i mean it, it's complicated because you know it's it's a very kind of vague term anyway it's kind of like what happened in the 60s to people yeah but you know very specifically i know what it you know meant for my parents you know both my mum and my dad, and I know my mum's story quite a lot better because I'm quite close to my mum's family. They kind of like escaped home, like, you know, 50s, 60s, really kind of ran from home. My mum came from really complicated, big family with a very hardcore dad. And she kind of ran like all their kids did, actually. My dad did as well. He kind of escaped and they kind of both kind of escaped their families a little bit. And, you know, they got into Buddhism and long hair. I've got an amazing picture. Like, you know, I used to have long hair. And, you know, my joke is that I tried to beat my dad, but I'm never going to because he had hair like, you know, way to, you know, his yeah. middle. And, you know, he married some 16 year old girl at some point. And um, yeah. And then, you know, they were both really big into Buddhism and they went to uh, an American retreat with Trumpa Rinpoche, who was like one of the major kind of Buddhist leaders who, who brought Buddhism to the West and had like um, um, his temples and stuff set up there. And he was a strange man from what I hear, alcoholic, but uh, inspirational apparently. So yeah, that's where they met as well. So it's, you know, definitely like, a, you know, they met at a Buddhist retreat in America. So it's probably about as hippie as you can get. Well, I guess right. they could have met at Woodstock or something. But yeah, that that's kind of the start of it. And I think my dad veered away from it a little bit, at least in a formal sense, because he wasn't really involved in Buddhist community anymore. But I think it's still kind of, you know, in some of his writings, you know, he, he kind of, kind of the mental thing is still there, but the practice isn't. Right. And they had, like, I don't know, a, a, a kind of intangible sense of religion. And my mum, like, she went on for a bit longer. And she also got into other things, you know. Uh, I think by the time she died, she was into some crazy Japanese 60s religion all about beaming light into people called, Ma like, it's Mahikari. My stepdad still does that. So that's what I, what I mean when I say my, my parents were hippies. You know, that's kind of like the content of it. And but I guess that's only a part of it. And uh, did you get like, I mean, so I, my, my parents never went to 
and did like Buddhism or anything like that. They they embraced some of the uh, the recreational pursuits of counter counterculture, um, and they also um, they they dressed as I mean they dressed as hippies and, and like had the long hair and stuff. But they but the main kind of influence I got from the sixties element of them. And my dad's not from the sixties; he's just like a time traveller. He embraced a different decade than he actually began in. Is like the politics of it, I guess, like feminism, anti capitalism, and stuff like that 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 came out of that, that that was there in that movement. As much as some of that movement didn't have it. I mean, where was yours? What was your upbringing like with that stuff? Well, you know, I mean, I think there was definitely some of that. I remember going to, you know, demonstrations against nuclear power. And, you know, I think that my mum was definitely squatting, I think, at some point. There were those kind of things. And, um, you know, I'm sure they dabbled a little bit into drugs and things like that. Nothing too serious, you know, except for, you know, obviously drinking for my dad. But that's not really the hippie hallmark, as it were. Big social consciousness, and I guess, I guess, you know, I guess I could have explained that a little bit further. Yeah, I grew up in like a shared living community, mm. and uh, I, I tell a lot about that in the in story, a tiny bit actually, which is, you know, I don't know, it was some weird nineties version of like a commune, right? Because it right. wasn't quite as shared, but they were all like really principled people, all like vegetarian, and you know, all for you know saving animals and against global warming and acid rain and all that stuff. So there's definitely like strong social consciousness stuff going on as well my dad kind of as I said like before he kind of left most of that he stumbled into computer programming by accident and that kind of became his day job and his kind of like favorite pastime he was always kind of tinkering and setting up computer networks and you know being a very early user of the internet and chatting with people overseas and um, and things so yeah so there's definitely also like kind of like the more kind of consciousness side of it and you know I definitely felt like growing growing up that my mom kind of imparted those kind of liberal you do what you like as long as long as you kind of don't harm anybody and you're happy kind of right. attitude to life I never got pushed to do um, well that's not true but not like you know not in a large overarching sense I got pushed to do something you know my mom never said oh you've got to be you know a doctor or you've got to make money or you, you and what, was your education like a part of that ethos or did you go to a, a school that was out that got gave you the, the mainstream culture as well well it was a bit of a mix and match so i did like a montessori a primary school which is like one of those alternative schools yeah then i went to a normal primary school well the choice i made anyway for high school was also kind of hippie-ish uh, yeah no i guess i guess so it was it was called the Werkplatz, which means the working place and uh, it was it, it was kind of like a like an idea like a Steiner school or like a Montessori school except that the owner of this particular one believed that every school was unique so it's the only one there and uh, you know it's semi-famous I guess and the and the guy who founded the school is an amazing very kind of moral guy and he, he was like an intellectual and he was kind of like entertaining people in his house and during the Second World War, he hid um, some Jews, things like that. And that kind of school traditionally was quite quite radical. I mean, it became a lot more normalized, but some of the things are still there. So, you know, the thing is, we didn't have teachers. We had facilitators <laughs> and we were workers. You know, it, it's, it, it was weird. But like the terminology was a little bit like, communist and scary in some ways, but it was meant really nicely. You know, it was all about kind of enabling other people. Right. 
fairly traditional school system. We had some weird things. Our building was a bit weird and we had like an interior garden that was this huge sprawling school. And the thing I really enjoyed about it and the thing that was quite special about it is it was really strong in the arts. Like all the arts teachers were amazing, you know, really, really good. Like, and, you know, just uh, art, the drawing teacher we had. And, um, and they also did musicals as well, which I participated, you know, which was fun. And they always did a big production, and then they they even managed to get it in into the uh, biggest stage in uh, in my hometown, and they would perform it for one two, two nights. I mean, they would do it because they would know like it would sell out, but still, you know, it was a kind of like you know, a quality thing there, they, and the, a kind of like a real focus to do it there, and that was that was cool. But yeah, that was kind of my, more out of. I remember when I, after primary school, I went to visit a couple of secondary schools or like high schools. In, in Holland, you've got a two-tier system, right? So there's no, none of that sixth-form nonsense. It's primary school and then high school or secondary school, and that's it. So, But yeah, I made that choice out of my own volition, as it were. Probably very definitely influenced by, you know, how my parents raised me. Right. Even though I had a little bit of a distance to the kind of hippie stuff. And, you know, yeah. I was no, no, not really into horrible, organic cooking <laughs> and things like that. Oh, my God. So you've sort of, like, moved away a little bit away from that? in terms of your life but you vaguely kind of accept the tenets of that stuff yeah i think so i mean like i don't know i mean i don't know i mean maybe this is going to sound horrible but like i don't consider myself a really like somebody who has really strong views about that kind of thing i kind of i think i generally agree but you know i don't know i'm not really moved (laughs) moved moved to kind of do it and i think also i don't know some of the some of the premise I don't quite agree with. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I don't know. But I do find myself returning to it a little bit, you know. I don't think I'll, I'll really get into organic food and stuff like that. But, you know, I, I do, I got a very kind of strong kind of leftist upbringing. I don't think that will ever leave me. Right. Kind of. Although, you know, over the years you... Refine and change it a little bit, right? Well, you refine, but you also kind of discover that's, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely, you find out it's complicated. You know, I mean, I, I think I could never be like, I, you know, the political party system works a little bit differently in Holland, but like, I would never, like, I, I, I've met people here, no, I, I've met people in Holland actually as well, who are like really steadfast, like party voters, like hmm. without question. I don't think that ever could be me, you know, to be honest, like, up to this point, like, I think the Conservatives has been doing pretty horribly, right? But that doesn't mean like, that Labour is like the automatic answer for me because of my leftist upbringing. Oh no, well that's because Labour aren't left-wing uh, organisation, they just say Well, they you know, no problem. <clears throat> right, like was your mum an artist or like a writer or something like that? Am I remembering that right or wrong? Because or well, that's the third element, isn't it, of like the hippie thing. It's like there's the spirituality, there's the politics, like there's the art, I guess. They're the dominant factors. Well, I mean, like, you know, <laughs> n- never in any kind of professional sense, but she did a lot of drawing right. and she did a lot of writing. She did poetry. You know, definitely like a creative person. Right, that's you, the sense I got from... Uh, that, you know, kind of a little bit of a kind of a wandering soul you know she uh, she was out of a job for quite a bit and she did odd jobs and then you know finally she was training to be a masseuse which I think she really enjoyed but she had to stop that because she became too ill but I think that was her calling really I think she really enjoyed that she worked for herself and she had like this amazing crazily designed business cards and things like that right so yeah you know definitely like a creative spark right but no I don't know no no kind of real intention of making that kind of livelihood or anything like right. that. Right. 
And, you know, my, I think my dad, I mean, he was a really, like, strong reader and um, he wrote beautifully as well, you know, even though, you know, that's the, that's the kind of, like, thing that is a bit of a shame. It's like, you know, when you're an adult, you can kind of take a distance and kind of appreciate your parents, you know, in the context of that you're now kind of more peers. Yeah. And, you know, so I never really got to read any of his writing or, you know, got to kind of ask those kind of questions and kind of figure out things from that perspective rather like, you know, from this kind of, you know, from this godlike perspective of your parents or gods kind of thing, you know, because that's, you know, in some ways that's what it's like. Uh, when you're a kid you yeah know? i mean right. not automatically for good they're not always good gods absolutely but they, that's there was a reason why I, I thought that greek mythology uh made more sense than uh, monotheism i think mm-hmm. and that's because those ancient greeks uh resembled parents yeah as in they didn't give a fuck sometimes and sometimes they did and mm-hmm. sometimes they were in a mood <laughs> but yeah. they were above you there was mm-hmm. something more than you yeah. and that's how you see your parents for sure i think yeah 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 and that's good and it's bad um and so and like your dad was into computer programming so Mm -hmm. he was an early adopter i mean the second question that i ask everyone which i normally ask yeah a lot earlier than this but uh is what do you do now and i think that sort of chimes with what your dad did right yeah, well, you know, there's a big irony here, right? And the irony is, is that I always had in my mind, it's like the last thing I want to do is be a computer programmer, right? Because <laughs> I can see what my dad does every day. And I'm like, you know, I don't want to sit at a desk like every day. That was my idea as a teenager. And I kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then I discovered actually the most fun I could have while I was in high school was, was making movies. So that's what I wanted to do. And then I discovered that, you know, making movies... You know, I don't know. I still have a great love for it. And, you know, I'm a big time movie buff. I don't know. I just, it just kind of faded a little bit. I mean, I'm not sure it has completely because it's, it's still quite recent. You know, I studied film and had a real idea. Like I wanted to enter the film industry and I did a bit of running, you know, kept making cups of tea for the assistant of the assistant of the person you eventually kind of like to be kind of thing, uh, which is horrible. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. It was a combination of, like, you do tend to do a lot of freebie projects. And, you know, at some point, because I was always kind of like the techie, I automatically gra- gravitated to kind of figure out, like, okay, right, this is a camera. How does it work? You know, what are the different things? And, you know, what do all these buttons do? And how do you make sure that everything lines out? And, you know, what is, what is the theory around, like, how you frame something up? You know, what, what does a frame tell? How does it work narratively? Although I'm also kind of fascinated by story and I did, you know, I do do, uh, do some writing still. And then, you know, I got into editing and even like really boring stuff like how to encode a video and make a proper DVD and stuff because I, out of necessity, really, you know, I figured out, oh God, I've got to upload this film and it's got to be reasonable quality and it's got to have all these things. How do I do that? So I figured all that out. And then, you know, I really enjoyed that technical stuff, really. And then, I don't know, I made an an interactive video installation based on some of the post-production work I've been doing because I wanted to do stuff live. So there's an amazing piece of software, which I really love, called After Effects, which allows you to... It's kind of like Photoshop for video, right? So yeah. kind of like... On top of that as well, it just come out of some kind of effects space, but mostly kind of flat. So not like full-blown 3D, although it does a tiny bit of that, but more kind of, kind of subtle effects. Like the thing that's kind of like the poster child for its use, I guess that's kind of like self-contained is something like title design, right? You can do amazing titles with it really easily and nicely. But, you know, it's not live, you know, and I wanted to do something with video life and I thought something about, like, you know, I want to do something where, 
you know, you make this kind of reactive experience and, you know, the only way to do that, well, that's not, not strictly true. But the way I ended up doing it was with programming. So I programmed something and then I, I figured out I actually want to do something with technology and, uh, you know, new technology is cool and, and narrative is really cool. I wanted to combine those two. And I don't know, it just kind of, I don't know, it just kind of happened. I just I ended up making a game kind of by accident for an internship I did. And then then I got recruited to do some some app thing for toddlers. And then it turned out that the main guy there couldn't actually program. So I was promoted, which is scary, but interesting. And I kind of managed to do that. And then, I don't know, we went to the testing session and then I met somebody and they gave me a job. <laughs> right. So then you became the thing that you had not wanted to be, but you actually liked doing it? Yeah, no, it's been, well, I mean, like, you know, that last job, it's been like a year and something now, so not even like that long. That's why, you know, I haven't quite set the narrative in stone, as it were. <laughs> yeah, I do really like it. I mean, I don't know, I do get a sense of, like, I wouldn't want to just kind of, like, start at one place and just stay there for, like, 30 years, you mm. know, until retirement. You know, I do want to have some more adventures and things. But actually what this allows me to do which is really rare and really or at least me for me really interesting is that i am at the cross section of the deeply technical and the creative and then you can have a little bit of debate and you can say all technical work is creative to some extent and that's true right but this is specifically creative in the context of something like an interactive experience something with narrative some yes you know in the form of art right, right. And uh, I find that immensely enjoying because it's got both the things I really like, right. which is like art, narrative, and the really kind of deep technical problems. I, I'm still having trouble to find analogies to explain to people how that actually works. But, it, you know, it's it's fun. It's it's an interesting problem. And so I do that quite a lot <laughs> every week. Yeah. I mean, you, you work a lot of hours. Yeah. Which means you don't have time, I guess, to have much of a social life around that. Is that right? Or... Uh, I mean, there there are spare hours and stuff, and you can always do what you want, but it's always kind of like a trick of not being lazy and managing your energy and finding ways that I could do things. And I found at some point I was drowning a little bit into that, so that I actually needed some kind of other things I needed to do on the side. Yeah. And also, you know, it's still also really hard to kind of carve out time for my own projects because I'm working on some... You know, that's the thing I started with, and still the thing I find really exciting is some interactive kind of art. Mm technical uh, kind of technological objects I want to make and I want to find time for that and kind of do that a little bit but not quite as much as I would like to but yeah I, I find the need to do something separate so I've kind of like like definitely now made more time to kind of socialize see people and do some storytelling yeah right and and well I mean and, and that kind of just happened to be honest but after that I thought you know what well, this is this is amazing I really love the premise of it I don't know this sounds negative but it's not really meant to be negative but the, the barrier for entry for, for storytelling is really low right and that makes it really interesting yes. right because you know a well told story is still a thing of beauty you know I think of talent maybe as well hmm. but it is a talent that all, like a lot of people have to a degree right and um, and and, it, and I just find it beautiful, you know. A, a true story is not just made by uh, the person. Like it's the the person. It's not just made in the person's mind. It's made by the context of what happened to them. 
right? Mm-hmm. And they didn't control that. That happened and they're retelling that. And it's also made by their character. Mm-hmm. Like, so I feel like what really works as a true story is when somebody gets up on stage and they reveal something of themselves. Mm-hmm. And you can get up and you can, and you can stand with a crafted story mm-hmm. and you can fail to do that. Mm-hmm. But you can stand up there with a completely improvised off the top of your head story and you can absolutely do that. And, and, and people do it by accident quite often. Like, well, well, even not- if you, what you reveal to people isn't even what you meant to reveal it's it that's what works is us going with somebody on a journey who a person we don't know you know and, and feeling their real life experiences well and i think also underlying this is the thing that at least i overlooked which but when you think about it right you know and i strongly believe this like people are really really deeply into narratives right mm, really into yeah, storytelling absolutely and you know it is so similar to what we do every day, right? We tell stories about our work, about, you know, mm-hmm. our lives, you know, who we meet, strange yeah. incidences. We do it all the time and we also hone that, you know. Everybody wants to be able to tell a good story. You know, that's what a lot of communication is about. Yeah. And I guess the thing, I guess, is maybe it's not so much innate as that we all train. We all train all the time because we love it you know that's well, the what do we have that isn't story yeah. i mean like history is a story right uh, science is a story because in order to communicate the idea you have to tell a story about it to get the person to understand it it, that can be a literal story of describing it or it can be a metaphor you know like Einstein had to use metaphors in mm. order to un- explain his theory and e- even then mm. I, I'm touch and go whether I fully understand those <laughs> metaphors even though I've studied it mm-hmm. and I think everything we do is storytelling and I, I really solidly agree with you on that I think I mean and that's with all of its complexities we we tell our own stories about our lives and so we lie to ourselves com- constantly about what really happened because we're not a reliable narrator and we don't actually remember things as they were you know uh, but that doesn't mean they're not real in a different way like a person's real life experience is more real than uh, mm. a fiction like well I mean I think what you're touching upon is that actually maybe you know and that's what I feel is that it's not lying at all you know the thing is is without a story there's nothing right without somebody kind of carving a pathway through something you know there is no reality right we create reality by creating the narrative whether that's true or false is I don't know it's kind of I don't know, it's kind of misunderstanding what it's about. You know, it, it is essentially an act of creation, you know, of, of something new, right? Because without story, what, what happens is just, I don't know, however you want to represent it, numbers or letters or, you know, light. But there's an argument that those are stories anyway. They're just non-verbal stories. Like, what is story? Like a, a comic strip is a story, you know, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can create a story through objects. Mm-hmm. You can like an art gallery exhibition is a story. You know it, 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 what a story is is everything. You're absolutely right. I think that. I mean, in some ways, I think that reality is story. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is yeah, exactly. There is nothing but story. I mean, you know, this is the kind of high level philosophical thought that really has no relation to anybody's real life but at the same time i think sums up what i think (laughs) well you know i mean and and and, you know stories you know they can make or break you know right you know stories can kill right i mean terrorism is a story Uh i've 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 been thinking that like very much in the last like uh recent like few weeks because this 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 
this story that we're telling now is mm-hmm. is is happening quite recently after the Charlie Hebdo thing. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating to see actually because I'm not really sure, like, what I don't know. Like, I guess that's that's the point of why I'm not really kind of into really organic stuff and my viewpoint is not so fixed because I see something like that happen and I'm honestly not sure what I would think about that, right? right? You know, I see a lot of things coming out of the work quite strongly and I'm not really sure, I'm not really sure where I would position myself in, in that debate. You know, there are a couple of things I I think I know about it, but I don't know, I, th- I think it's, it's, you know... Well, I think the idea that there's two sides is wrong. I think that in terms of this idea that there's there's two sides to be on in that there's there's so many positions mm-hmm. and so many of them have a lot of a lot of validity mm-hmm. within them. Mm-hmm. Like this is this this is this idea that we have this binary sense mm-hmm. of good and evil, right and wrong, left right, terrorism, mm-hmm. government, whatever. Like that's that's what I, is that what you're talking about? I mean, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think so. But, you know, I mean, you know, there's a trap there because, you know, just because you don't have an opinion or something or things are like ambiguous in your vision, that doesn't mean that, you know, the situation is well served because there's definitely better and worse. Oh, absolutely. So, But I think the only way you get to better mm-hmm. is to look at the nuances of the situation, look at the way that the stories are being told, like everything that we think about everything comes from the story of the media or we look out for alternative media and then that's the way we get this story and then we've got our own life mm-hmm. yeah and i think it's hugely, <laughs> yeah. and that's that's the only story we almost understand but we don't understand ourselves right so no i don't yeah no i think you're totally right on that and also i think it's really fascinating is that you know news also essentially is a story right yeah and but it's you know, in the news story, is what we call. News. And the, and the thi- and the thing is, is that you know I've kind of come back around for it, but for a while there, you know, I chose not to follow the news or read newspapers because I felt like, what is this narrative serving? You know, what are we actually doing with this information? And isn't like in some ways, like like news is like the grossest form of entertainment you can imagine, right? You know, because we love stuff like war and conflict that's fascinating i've got to admit i find it fascinating you know a good story like a good like historical you know write-up of you know i I read like tony judd's history book about post-war europe and it was tremendously interesting and exciting and all sorts of things there you know but all of these things are real people as well that's the complication of it all isn't it Mm -hmm. like you you know you can flit about you can understand those two things at the same time we can talk about these things theoretically and we can still understand the the real ramifications of human loss and life like Mm -hmm. like like i mean and like you've experienced loss so you Mm -hmm. understand like on some levels in one way Mm-hmm. Uh, how the the victims of these kind of wars might feel like the the loss of and and on and on and on like so much human real loss, but at the same time you can absolutely look at it like mm-hmm. an intellectual puzzle. I can, you know, mm-hmm. we it, we're we're capable of doing both those things. Well, you know, I, I think I read somewhere, and I think I agree with that. You know, we have we have a lazy mind, uh, and what that implies is that. You know, whenever we can simplify things or not actively engage with something, we will almost automatically. You know, so the more we push things into schematic, the the better that allows room for being busy with other things. 
and kind of giving attention to that, right? It's a blessing that we don't have to think about how we walk, for instance, you know, because that's usually complicated process, right? But it just right. goes automatically. And I think something similar goes for, you know, the processing of information. We simply, like, when you look at a war, like, you simply don't have the time to mourn for every single victim that is killed. Yeah. You know, it, it, there's just not space for it. No, absolutely. In a, in a very real and maybe kind of a sad way. But, you know, that's, that is a reality, I think. I'm quite passionately against war, I guess, if that's mm. a, a statement that I feel comfortable making. It now seems, like, very trite in my mouth. But, I mean, like, so what I mean is, like, I think that it's important to always remember, like, to be one of the, the stories we should tell about war is the human personal level, and mm. we should always tell that story when war comes up. And then if we, if we, if we tell that story first and then we think about the bigger picture thing, mm. then our... Oh, the way we treat that bigger picture thing will be so much more human and nuanced and likely to to save lives. I think. Yeah, I think those things are pivotal. You're totally right. You know, whenever you bring in, but you know, the thing is, is that it's a slice, and it's it's almost always a selective slice. You know, for better or for worse. Mm. You know, uh, a really interesting thing I read recently is I read a little bit about Rosa Parks. You know, the woman who wouldn't go to back the Absolutely, bus. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, the fascinating thing to me was that, you know, I never knew this and, you know, it's common knowledge, but, you know, I found out is that, you know, this whole thing was staged. You know? No, I, yeah, I only learned that relatively recently. And, and you know, they did a whole audition and they picked an old woman because, you know, she was kind of the ultimate symbol of her vulnerability and, you know... Everything, you know, Martin Luther King did in his team like but, is, was, was in gear to kind of push this as a story. Ah, uh, right. But there's also another interesting side to that. Rosa Parks was also a seasoned activist. She'd mm. been like, uh, she came to that to that situation, a person who had been consistently an activist for it. For, like, she wasn't created in that moment. The way we're told that story is mm. a, a, a black woman mm -hmm. uh, got fed up one day mm -hmm. and then that's how it all started. That's kind of what, that's how I received that story in, yeah. my, in my history class. You went to a more progressive no, no, uh, I, I, school, but maybe not in this way, you know. Well, White I mean, supremacy is... Uh, is, is there all over the place? Well, I mean, <laughs> we, we didn't really get that much US history, to be honest. Right. We, we uh, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure how it is here, but I do get the sense, like, uh, you know, history is a lot more kind of, obviously, more kind of English-centered, but also more kind of American-centered here. Right, no, than, no, that's very true. Than, than it is in Holland, because, you know, you know, for however, like, much they kind of historically hate each other, they are kind of like brothers, you know, uh, in, in a lot of real sense, which is, I don't know, it's such an irony, you know never like really tasted such like strong american negative sentiment towards americans as in england right i i totally agree with this and and you know the biggest irony is that so you, similar it, well not so similar but you know in some ways and this is kind of like one of my pet peeves and I always try to correct my friends when they say this is like they like people tend to talk about europe right and europe means every other country in europe but england and it really deeply annoys me because it and people are like, oh, it's kind of petty or something. No, but no, I, I really believe in the strength of, of words and what that implies. You know, when people talk about continental philosophy, you know, oh my God, you know, I want to throw up. Because it's kind of separating England as this kind of separate nation. And, you know, there is a troubled relationship. But, you know, every country in it. In but that's the story that England tells about itself. It says we're an island. And it says, you know, we're, we're an island that conquered the world, right? Yeah. That's our story. It's a fucked up shit story. And I, 
I, I, I thoroughly agree. But it's but I find it so ironic now. Like I know a lot of American friends of mine, and I've known that they've experienced quite a lot of anti-American sentiment from the British populace, mm. which I find fascinating because we're so closely yeah, exactly. linked with America. We're not just in our politics, which we're massively, completely dependent on America in our politics in a terrible way for everybody in the world, mm. but we're but but we also are like so wedded to their culture, so wedded yeah. to their to their art to their language and I I'm, I like that art I like that language I don't judge the people of that country on their leaders any more than I judge the people of the UK on our leaders because if I was going to judge us on our leaders we would be much worse than the the US which there are critiques to be made of the Obama government but they are nowhere near the same as the fucked up shit I mean well they are I don't know they're in different places I guess there's a lot of issues with uh, Obama's foreign policy decisions but I mean you know, yeah. No, no, I, I, you know, I, I completely agree. You know, you can't, like, you know, judge our country by its leaders. And I think that's totally right. And, you know, you know, just the simple things, you know, Americans are stupid, you know, they're always overblown. And right, stuff, but and we're they... anti-European too, right? We're anti-everybody that we're really closely connected to. Because like you're saying, we're not separate from Europe. There mm-hmm. is a lot of commonality between our, our interests and European interests. Because there's also a lot of commonality between European interests and American interests. The 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 difference is really overstated. Quite often, they're basically mm-hmm. uh, fighting the same wars and they are making the same inter- international choices. So, like the myth that that we're a, like a different entity from America seems quite questionable. European, like the whole of Europe, really. I think. Yeah. Well, you know. It, I mean, that's a big generalized statement. It's much more complicated than that. No, I mean, but, you know, sometimes you have to go there. You know, it, it's an important link, you know, certainly. But, so... But what's, I mean, what's the difference? What's Holland's story about itself, you know? So, you know, you know, obviously this is going to be, like, biased and a little bit oversimplified and stuff, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, so was mine about the UK. Um, but, you know, I mean, you know, still American culture is really strong uh, as well, you know, as it is in, in a lot of parts of the world, but especially in Europe, you know, historically that is because they were culturally quite dominant and they kind of exported their culture uh, really successfully. But uh, Holland's got, and this has two sides to it, Holland's got like a much more kind of international perspective in a very real way. You know, that that sounds kind of like airy, but that manifests itself in like, you know, the newspaper, right? So if you, you pick up a British newspaper, like I'll, I'll get these percentages wrong, right? But, you know, it's illustrative, as it were. Like I think maybe like 70, 70%, English newspapers is is national stories, right? Stories relating to, to right. England and then 30% Agreed. is international. Agreed. And for Holland, it's almost like the opposite. And there are a lot of historical reasons for that. But basically, we're so involved with kind of exporting stuff to other countries that we basically can't afford to ignore. And I think also people are interested. These things go kind of hand in hand. Language uptake is also much better. I mean, I think it's going down a little bit, but I can sort of save myself in French. I can probably speak a little bit of German. You know, I know some English, you know. They're, they're... You know a lot of English. We're conducting <laughs> this conversation in English. So yeah, yeah, I would say it's more outward looking. And I mean, the flip side of that is that it's a little less appreciative of its own culture and get like really weird things like most of the bands, they actually sing in English, which is, you know, in some level deeply weird. Yeah, but we all sing in American accents. I had to unlearn my American accent. Like when I first started singing in bands, I instinctively sung in an American accent. You know, and that's where people kind of... Uh, uh, they often mistake me for ha- an American accent, having an or yeah, 
coming from America. It's funny, it? I, I mistake you for Irish. Yeah, I you hear that. Like, you sound like Mark Cousins, the <laughs> film critic. If you ever get a chance to hear his delightful tones, you should check him out. He's, he's quite a voice twin in some ways. I know, but yeah, no, people guess all sorts of funny things, you know, Scandinavia, Germany, yeah, Ireland, Scotland. You even had an Irish person like once guess that I was from Ireland, which is impressive. There's something about your pacing, I think, because <laughs> I've, I've got kind of Irish family. And yeah. You so, pacing. but yeah, I don't know. So, I mean, I think by and large, and I, you know, I appreciate that outlook a lot. You know, I think it's, it's, it's only right to be really interested. I'm, you know, often horrified by uh, that kind of the internal perspective, you know, the UK has, you know, and also, I don't know, a lot of things feel really horrible about England, like intentional. Like I remember, this is my favorite example. I remember like when I was only living here for a year or so, I opened up like a metro and in a metro they had like a, um, a virtual representation of like an eight-year-old kid or something. And then they had drawn in where he was bruised and beaten. And I was like, oh my God, what? why? You know, that, that was like a big question in my mind. Why, why would you do this, right? Why, why is it so important to kind of sketch this out in detail? Why is so much effort being put into this? And I have that feeling a lot, you know, and that's the one thing about, well, I don't know, there's a couple of things, I guess, but like, I think it's the strongest thing that really, what I really don't like about England is that there's such a, a really strong focus on real, like hardcore negativity, you know, and you, 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 can, you can see it in posters, right? You know, this is, this is another kind of good example is yeah. people that are like, you know, you have to be safe in traffic, right? So we've got the English ad, right? Which is some teenager lying dead on the street, right? This could be your friend, right? That's the message, right? I remember the bicycle light safety campaign in Holland, which was people driving around with like uh, chandeliers and stuff. You know, it's a different perspective. I feel it's so sad that like, you know, so much, you know, so much of the great humor comes from kind of understatement and kind of like playing, playing that social game and kind of always being kind of subtle and negative and stuff, which is fun, right? But I do find it sad that so few people I've met say out loud and I have those moments with my friends in Holland, you know, where I say, you know, life is beautiful. You know, it's a gift and it's amazing and, you know, I'm glad I'm here and I get to do it. But you can only think that it's beautiful if you've... Like, you need the comparison. You need both things, I think. Like, I think that there's a danger in an overly negative culture and I can in some ways agree that the UK has that. But I think an overly positive culture is also a problem. Like, I, I like to have experienced the highs but appreciate the realities of the lows like I think there is and I don't just say this as someone who runs a night of focusing on negative things I also say it as someone who yeah enjoys the light I enjoy joy well, I like I mean, having beautiful days too but I think it's a lie to deny the, the dark the darkness well I mean it's <laughs> a lie but you know I think there's a real trap there and you know people always talk about you know I'm, I'm not pessimist I'm realistic which I hate I hate yeah. you know because you're not I've been known to say that uh, you know you, you know you're not like being realistic by being negative you know I but think, I think optimists think they're realistic as well everybody thinks they're realistic yeah, well, whatever I, their perspective is well I mean my, my view is this right I think everything was a fiction right or yeah, like be, that, yeah. be, being like positive or negative, like both make the same amount of nonsense, right? <laughs> so what I have actively choose or try to choose every day is a positive outlook because that makes me happier, right? right? And you know, it has almost nothing. Well, you know, it has almost nothing to do with reality. It's my choice. So as a whole, 
I would always strongly argue to say that life is beautiful, and it is in all its facets. And you, you talk about, you know, your show, Stand Up Tragedy, but like, I don't know, you know, you could say that's kind of the bad part of life, and certainly it's not fun to experience. It's supposed to be beautiful, though. But it, it is also beautiful, you know? Yeah, and yeah. this is the thing I, I find amazing about stories and narrative in general, is like, what what kind of... One of the things that strikes me most is that moment where somebody tells you some of their innermost thoughts and you connect with that and you're like, wow, you know, I'm not alone. Like, you know, I'm connecting here with this person I may or may not know. And, you know, he's revealed something I would never reveal. Right. And I connect with that. And we we are we share this darkness. And and that's and that's the beauty of storytelling. You know, that's I, I guess ultimately also why I wanted to tell a story, because I've been touched by a lot of stories and, you know, maybe I had something that I could tell to touch others or explain something about the experiences I went through. And it's really beautiful when you're done and people come up to you afterwards and they're like, you know, you know, that resonated for me and you've exposed something for them, which touched them. And and that's, you know, that dialogue is, is, is amazing. Oh, yeah. And it, I mean, I've had that. I mean, that's the, and that was the thing about risk and and some of the other nights I've done recently. So when when you're telling stories about really hard to tell stories, like mm-hmm. I've told stories about mental health issues and mm-hmm. and the one I told that night about feeling ugly and stuff, and and they're hard to tell. But when you've told them, mm-hmm. people are so kind of they, they want to share their their story and they but they also want to to thank you because they've not heard that story told mm-hmm. and I guess that's my problem with the idea of a, of a completely positive or a completely negative culture I want to see the people's realities being told whatever they are and I want to see them in their in their multitudes like we, we only hear a very limited amount of stories we only hear from a very limited amount of people we have a an art scene a media scene all of these things that are representative of the dominant culture the dominant people within culture but they are not the majority of people and i want to hear all their stories you know yeah no and i think that's right you know i think for me like my my kind of eye-opening moment was something like my favorite comedian kind of said it's bill hicks who's amazing i mean i'm sure he was also a bit of an asshole to be honest hey i mean all of our heroes are dickheads (laughs) but that doesn't make them not heroes but you know he said something and and he's quite popular in the uk as well i discovered but uh, he said something where he popular at the time uh, uh where he said you know it's all a ride you know that was kind of a catchphrase you know the thing is it's like you know it has thrills and chills and there's all this kind of you know look at how serious i am you know this is my bank account and kind of paraphrasing here you know, these are my children, this must be real, but you know, it's just a ride. And I totally ascribe to that, you know, and you know, it's, it's hard, you know, it's work every day, you know, you get caught up in life in general, in kind of ascribing to this reality that's serious and that's real, but actually you can let go of that if you want. And you can just say, listen, this is, this is an adventure and I'm going through it. And you can, you can create distance there. You can kind of float above it and you can say like, listen, this is, this is life. And, you know, from that perspective, I find it easy to kind of say, like, I find this beautiful and enjoyable. But I totally agree with that. But I also think that there is a kind of counter, counter, counter reality, counter narrative, counter story to that, though, in the, the people who have the opportunity to feel that way mm-hmm. have to be lucky enough to 
for the material reality around them to allow them to feel that way. So I feel like every everybody in every situation from every group has an opportunity to occasionally feel what you're what mm-hmm. you're talking about. But this opportunity to step back is not the material reality of lots of people because of you know the nature of their actual working lives or then or their you know the poverty or the marginalization that they have within culture or globally speaking you, do you know what i mean like not everybody and i i am speaker someone lucky enough to be able to do what you're talking about mm-hmm. and i want to do it more because it would be better for my mental health to do so but if i if i could achieve that ability to just step back and yeah enjoy be in the moment uh, have an adventure and I, I try to put adventures into my life like me and my partner go for officially for what we call adventure days where we like we go out on an adventure oh. in London to try and or around London to try and mm-hmm. yeah subvert the reality that we have in our lives to, to, to change up the system but we're lucky to be able to be able to do that and and you don't have to be that materially lucky yeah. to materially privileged to be able to do that we're not very wealthy but we're just lucky within you know within our background within our, the country we're in right we're not in a war zone mm-hmm. like we're not homeless like you know we have things and therefore we can have that luxury that is 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 not every not everyone can achieve what you're saying because of their material reality but everyone can if you even it out if everybody has the same material reality or a similar level of requirements on their on their life on the, all of these things they can they can they can approach life in that way but but not everyone can I mean that's just I mean I feel like that's something people people feel and I feel sometimes even as I'm really seduced and have felt and do feel exactly what you're talking about I think well I mean I, I would slightly disagree with that and I would say like for me to start with that I would say the ultimate goal would be if every moment of, a, of my life I could see it from a distance and I guess if I have any kind of real spirituality it would be that you know and funnily enough you know when you bring it back to it that's quite a kind of a buddhist thought really you know because you know in some ways you could equate that to kind of stepping back from things like ego and things mm. but ultimately that would be the goal but i take issue with the fact that you can say that you know we are free to kind of do these pursuits because we're kind of privileged because you know it's not like they're not related or anything like that you know obviously when life is hard you kind of get drawn into life more. Some people have harder lives. And some people have harder lives. But I don't think, you know, I think anybody can make the choice to take that perspective. You know, it might be harder, it might be easier, but it's certainly not, it's certainly not a privilege. And I think kind of stating it like that is slightly condescending in a way. No, I totally take that fact i mean that's why i was trying to say that anyone can experience it like i'm not saying that working class people or black people or whatever are not capable of of uh, of that kind of like just stepping out even if they've got a horrible horrible mm. job that doesn't stop and bills to pay and all of the horrific like real life things that get in the way they're totally capable of of doing that but the material reality of their life doesn't lend them that much time to achieve that and doesn't necessarily put them into that way of thinking because hardship hangs over you can't just go you can't just drop hardship in some ways like whatever hardship means well i mean i i think you can i mean yeah as i said i think there's a relationship there but i think you know people can choose to and one of the things that i read that kind of opened my eyes to this a little bit is that there is an amazing dutch journalist who also finally did some some work here in england around the the uh 
kind of the banking scandals and stuff called Joris Leundijk. Joris Leundijk. I don't know. I don't don't know how you want to pronounce it in English. But he's a journalist, and he used to you know do a lot of reporting in the Middle East. And he he wrote a beautiful book about journalism, which was all about you know this idea of that that journalism seems really this really solid factual thing but actually you know a lot of time it's kind of just the reporter can kind of piece together or make up even right. on the spot it's a story. and he was saying that he went to he went to a place where there's a famine and he felt so awkward coming in there you know kind of well-fed westerner he didn't know what to say he was so he was so awkward that he just kind of burst and said you know hello everybody kind of like happily and, you know, his surprising experience was that, you know, everybody responded really happily and engaged. And I think there's a key thing there where, you know, we reduce people to to kind of like the things we perceive as being their misery and definitely make their life right. hard. But, you know, in, in some really real sense, like we're all people and we, no, all, we yeah. all go through that experience. And, you know, even if life is really hard. So that's why I take you know issue with that you know i mean there is some truth to it you know obviously like when you've got time and space and you've got time to think about these things sort of or maybe find these ideas but i would say that you know anybody would be able to kind of do it well i mean isn't there isn't there one way that it's i mean i i I agree with a hell of a lot of what you said then and i i definitely think that we reduce people to their to their material conditions too much and that ignores the complex reality of humanity um and often the, the very problem with the groups that we're talking about is that they're not being treated as humans and then if we start to uh to reduce them to just poverty or whatever then we're not treating them as human i totally agree with that but isn't there one way that it's privileged in in that not everybody has the like not everybody's mental health maybe will allow them to to think that way like i don't i don't want people to feel if they can't achieve that thing that Mm. there's something that's wrong with them you know because i don't think there is like yeah maybe they need to train themselves to achieve that thing there's that's what therapy is about and all of these things and I, i i but there are times in my life I can't choose whether to be happy or sad. I just can't. Like, I can't. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure if I agree with that. But I mean, I well, also... I, that's my experience is that when I'm depressed, I can't feel uh, what you're talking about. I can't reach that sense of adventure or that we're, life is a story. The story I'm telling myself with my mind is too intense. I don't know. I think there's a... You know, there's a very real choice there. You know, I know this is kind of like I can't choose to get to not be depressed. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I, 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 can't. I, I mean, I've tr- I, I, otherwise I would. I really would like to choose. But to I mean, I, I guess this is kind of like veering to slightly dangerous territory because I don't really want to suggest that you know, you know, just get over it. You know, that's not really like the answer to depression, and I know that and I respect that. But I think there's in some very and it might be very hard and very difficult. But I think you know there is a. You know, I I think there is a decision there and a decision that's possible. You know, I don't know. I guess it's kind of like about how you want to define possible, right? But it's definitely about choices you make. And I don't think those are a given, right? I think people can change. I think they can change their mental health, probably. I think we can develop develop tactics and all sorts of things. And that's what is mental health. Like there's, there's chemical, there's nature, there's nurture, there's all of the complicated elements that may or may not determine someone's individual thing. Mm -hmm. And I think you can train differently or whatever, but you, you can't, 
just like yeah maybe there's a decision but not everybody is capable of making the decision that you well i mean that some people other people can make and not every time and sometimes they can sometimes they can't like we're so fractured like we're not always the same there's there, there's something that runs in the middle of us as in our identity but we're also loads of different people like our identity is fluid and how we are able to think is is different at different times there must be a certain element of some people are better at at thinking one way and some people are better at thinking another way i don't like the idea of intelligence i think there's lots of different kinds of intelligence and that intelligence doesn't matter that much is a quality that we should care about but i you know people have different ways of thinking and and some people's way of thinking is better at doing what you're talking about than others i think yeah i don't know i mean i guess i guess also you know i'm not really that prone to depression myself so maybe like to an extent i really don't know what i'm talking about but i don't know i do i do feel like you know there's a real trap there in kind of you know saying in in being resigned in into the reality that you've created Oh no, right. I mean, I agree with that to a certain extent. The, the, the story I'm telling myself when I'm depressed is not a story that is in my best interest and mm-hmm. it's not within my life's story's best interest. And if I can learn to tell that story differently, mm-hmm. maybe change the way I approach that story or whatever, that I can, that I can, uh, I, yeah, I think I can change and I think there is an element of choice there. I mean, I guess I'm just saying it's not as simple. Like, whatever you say, it's going to be also. It's basically, this is, we've got to a Niels Bohr territory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he said uh, that there's a, a trivial truth and a profound truth and a trivial truth is um when it the, the opposite to a trivial truth is a lie mm-hmm. like uh you got fact and fiction but the truth but the opposite to a profound truth uh is a profound truth mm-hmm. uh that the two things are both true mm-hmm. so in he was thinking about it in terms of uncertainty principle something mm-hmm. is both a particle and a wave mm-hmm. um but i think you can apply it to a much more kind of philosophical perspective so for example humans are the most wonderful thing ever and the uh, worst thing ever or the universe is uh everything and the universe is nothing like like every like those those points where both sides are true you know mm-hmm. and i think we've kind of got to that point where i think yeah there's something in what you're saying but it's also the opposite is also true yeah you know maybe maybe there is something in that you know and you know i certainly wouldn't want to suggest that you know there's just kind of like you know a, a switch you can flick and then it's over but I mean, I guess also importantly, stepping away from it and having perspective is just my personal goal, you know? And, yeah, well, and, I think that's a great point of view to have. It's definitely an excellent personal goal. There's absolutely and, no and, question and, about And, that. you know, other people, they can do whatever they like. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't really feel the need to, to prescribe this too much to people, except in the sense that sometimes, you know, it can be, sometimes it can be really helpful, you know, at least as a, as a, as a momentary thing. You know, the idea of perspective is always you know tremendously useful um, no absolutely but that's a, i mean but that's a, exactly but perspective is definitely a, a, a niels bohr like thing for me it's like we are the least important thing ever mm-hmm. we're the least important thing in the universe and of course to ourselves the most important thing like ourself like who we are each individual is the least important and the most important thing at the same time we're insignificant mm-hmm. but we're the absolute most significant thing to us mm-hmm. right it's about where your frame of reference is well i mean but i i you know i think interestingly enough though the insignificance is part of, of um 
Well, maybe both, you know, but I feel that significant is kind of the larger fiction, right? Because that's a story we tell about the universe and how the world operates in some sense of the scale of the universe or whatever, right? But, uh, you know, it's fairly arbitrary, really, right? And I think in a much realer sense, we are like the entirety of reality because, you know, we can't really separate ourselves from it. You know? Yeah, they're both absolutely, but they're both true. It depends where you're looking from. If you're looking from the point of view of the universe, we're insignificant. Well, but you looking, can't really do that. That's a well, problem. that absolutely. Well, that's the, that's always the case. You can never be in the other frame of reference. Mm -hmm. Some, you know, it's either a particle or it's a wave. It can never be both at the same time. Like Schrodinger's cat, the you know, uh, is a theory of th something being two things at the same time, but it never actually fully can be. Yeah, I, I, you know, and that's you know a fascinating thing about stuff like quantum physics is that, you know, it's it's you know it's mind-boggling how something so technical can have like so severe kind of philosophical like ramifications and ideas attached to it. Maybe not even ramifications, but certainly philosophical ideas attached to them, which are really interesting. And it, you know, I, I think it's um, it's a really interesting space when you read about. Uh, like how philosophy and science are intertwined and how like science has actually you know actually made some philosophical problems go away mm -hmm. and created new ones and, right you know that's interesting because you know traditionally at least you don't really think of them operating in the same kind of no thought space i mean for me i did i studied a a, a course at university in my first year called universe as an art and it was taught by the physics department to artists. It was designed for people who had no maths, which I have none mm -hmm. of. Uh, and it was about teaching us about the theories uh, and the ideas and the stories in, in science. So for me, like uh, when I think of physics, I always am really coming at it from the point of view of the arts or philosophy. Mm -hmm. Like what I, when I heard about like Niels Bohr, like what I know about all of that stuff, I've always seen through a metaphorical rather than a physics angle really. Um, and I mean, it wasn't me that kind of first, I mean, uh, uh, the playwright Michael Frayn wrote a book about uh, called Copenhagen about uh, the relationship between uh, between the physicists during the like in the Copenhagen uh, hypothesis. And uh, that's one of the places where I came across this idea of life being both a particle and a wave as well. That's one of the things that's in that. And I think that's true. Like mm -hmm. when you think about life, it's from the beginning to the end. That's the story of your life. But the moment you're in the, it within that life is the particle. Because mm -hmm. like, you're in the now. You're always in the now. Mm -hmm. But your complete story is a wave, you know. Mm -hmm. But you're always this one pinprick within that wave. And I think that's a, another thing that I... Yeah, I've taken from physics or from artists looking at physics or like this mm -hmm. circular thing. Yeah, this has gone, this conversation <laughs> has gone really like surprisingly philosophical and it's flowed really nicely. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed being both the particle and the wave of this conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think so. You know, I don't know. We just uh, kind of veered off, but, you know, I think that's fine. You know, it's, it's, it's ultimately these things, you know, or at least for me, you know, I don't really want to speak for anybody else. It's part of the experiences that you get and they kind of solidify new things, you know, and in some really weird way, you can kind of say that the fact that I went through the things I went, I don't know, they, they, they shape kind of the fundamentals of the understanding of reality, even on a physical level, you know, and it's also part of, of, of your life story, you know, what comes out, what kind of 
views you ascribe to. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I definitely feel like I got better acquainted with you. <laughs> uh, and I feel like I've, I've also revealed quite a lot of me in this conversation, too. It's been, a, it's been a nice one to have. I've enjoyed it. The last question that I ask everybody, do you have anything to plug, which always feels absolutely weird after a, a really emotional moment or deeply philosophical conversation? But take it as you will. No, I mean, I don't have, really have anything to plug. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think... Um, you know, I don't really come here with, um, uh, you know, not to knock anybody, but, you know, I don't really come here with the ulterior motives, as no. it were. I one, mean, one of the ways people have taken it, though, surprisingly, is they've taken it to, like, be their opportunity to make a comment about the world or, like, have a, a thought, like, more generally about reality. It sort of surprised me when that started at the beginning, and I now sort of flag it up when I can, because I feel like everyone deserves the same opportunity. Mm-hmm. But you kind of were getting, I think, I feel like some of what we were talking about near the end was pretty much a plug from you of, like, ways to approach life. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, I guess if you want to kind of, like, broaden the scope of what a plug actually is. Yeah. But, you know, no. I mean, it's fine. You know, we've, we've had a nice conversation. I don't think I need to um, redirect people's attention elsewhere. Okay. I mean, that's perfectly fine. Some people definitely do not plug. Mm-hmm. Um, I've certainly had the idea of plugs, like, rubbished and uh, deconstructed in, in, from all angles, uh, asking this question, which I, I quite like, the idea of deconstructing the concept of plugging, so I enjoy it. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, and, and, you know, as I said, like, you know, no, you know, I think in life, you know, uh, we all have to do a bit of plugging now and then. You know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be scared. I certainly bloody do it all the time. And you, you know, shouldn't certainly be be scared of it. You know, because you know that's how you get stuff done. You know, that's one of the things I took away from like uh, going to America quite recently, where they obviously do a lot of charity. Well, because they've got no, no government support, kind of thing. Yeah. Right? And they're really like you know Americans, and this is I have deep respect for that. They're really good at running charities and running fundraisers, and that's all about plugging and kind of getting people to ascribe. Yeah. And that's the only way to do it. You know, they they they've honed that skill, you know, by some principle of evolution because it must. Right? And they're amazing at it, you know, and I've got a lot of respect for that. I've got a lot of respect as well, you know, of the, you know, I don't know, I guess you could say it's an unfortunate side. Of, no, well, I don't know. It's a side effect nonetheless, and it's a good one. And I think there is a beautiful sense there that through a system with really low taxes, which has, you know, its problematic sides, there is a really strong sense of that if you're not going to do it, nobody is. And that right. creates a beautiful sense of responsibility and, uh, you know, that's one of the things I really, really like, you know. There are lots of amazingly philanthropic Americans out there because they have a strong sense of, right. of, of that importance. Because the, the state doesn't do it for them. Certainly the arts in America, people are much more prepared to support than they are in this country because the state's supposed to support it in this country, but they don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, podcasters, for example, in America find it much easier to support themselves mm-hmm. uh, than we do in this country. Yeah. yeah. And well, that almost that was almost a plug for America. Really. <laughs> um, and the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Okay. Well, goodbye, audience. I hope you had a nice listening experience. <laughs> Bye, everybody. And talking of plugging, the next stand-up tragedy will be on the 6th of June at the Hackney Attic, and it's Tragic Summer, a seasonal sprinkling of tragedy to keep you warm on a cold summer night. 
And also currently going out on the Stand Up Tragedy podcast are the episodes from Tragic Spring. And it was such an amazing gig. Those podcasts are really, really quality. I recommend going and listening to them. The first one's out already, Tragic Beginnings. In two weeks' time, there'll be Tragic Bodies, which was guest-hosted by Matilda Gregory, and it was amazing. And then, finally, two weeks after that, we'll have Tragic Sex, which was another amazing part of the show. Really, really good. If the last stand-up tragedy is anything to go on, you should definitely come to Tragic Summer on the 6th. can follow getting better acquainted on twitter at gba podcast you can like it on facebook subscribe to it pretty much anywhere that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk and remember there are lots of ways to get better acquainted <laughs>